Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing guest, you know, a guest that uh, he's done it multiple times and right now he's on an absolute rocket ship. Uh, he is going to be telling us about when to walk away from ideas, raising money, some of the childhood experiences that he, uh, you know, got, you know, from growing in a, in a farm in the rural uh, Ireland. And then also, you know, what was like, you know, the pros and cons of coming here to the U.S. So a lot of good stuff that we're going to be covering, you know, again, you know, on building, scaling and financing. And also, you know, I guess that has asked me, you know, also to be questioned, you know, by him. And obviously he has my approval and green light to do so. So it's going to be both ways today. And I'm sure that you're all going to really enjoy this episode. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Owen Matthews. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thanks for having me on. You don't know what my questions are yet, so they may get edited out. You have all the power in this relationship. Oh, absolutely not. You know, it's always super authentic and transparent in that regard. So give us a walk through memory lane. Owen, how was life growing up there in rural Ireland? Yes, yeah, Sam. I grew up on a dairy farm. And so I think if you grow up on, on a farm, you, you're a labor of a unit of labor as much as you are a kid. And and so I think one of the one of the early lessons was that you either want to be a farmer or you don't. And manual labor um, can be extremely hard work. So education seemed an awful lot easier. And I was the deal in our household growing up is you could go to school or you can go on the farm. And I was one of six kids. And interestingly, none of us chose to be farmers. And, and this is a multi-generational farm. So everybody walked away from the land and said there are easier ways to make a living. And um, hopefully time will prove us right. But um, it was a, it's an interesting introduction into the world because you do contribute to the, the household economics from very early on in your life. And you realize that it's a, it's a team effort to pay the bills every month. Um, and so with the education opportunity open up, I um, ultimately studied mechanical engineering in Ireland. And that, that, that's, quite, that's quite a switch, though, eh, Owen. Uh, I guess even, even before you get into that, you know, what did you learn from like economics and business formation, you know, during during your childhood days? There is some stuff and I can't tell if this was stuff that I fully understood at the time or it's all hindsight looking back. One thing that was interesting is that the price was always set for farmers. And in other words, other people were telling you how much they'd pay you and you were going to produce it. And then you find out almost afterwards how much your gallon of milk or how much your pound of meat is worth. And there was no market. So there were very strong monopolies that owned the supply chain and often very, very big businesses that dictated the terms to their suppliers. And it was very clear that being on the supply end of the stick was a pretty poor outcome to be in. You had no control over your destiny. You thought you did, but you didn't. The other thing you could observe from, I'd say, the entrepreneurial farmers, and farmers tend to be entrepreneurial by nature. It's, a, it's tough. But... um. There were farmers who realized that they could make the similar scale of capital investments, not necessarily in tractors, but in added value services. So a simple example would be somebody could make a lot of money than being a potato chip manufacturer instead of a potato, potato supplier. That seems really dumb and obvious, but just seeing the difference in outcomes over a relatively short period of time where people decided to make the capital investments 
So did they put it into new tractors and labor on the tractors or did they put it into added value services? And, and they just have materially different outcomes. They're different businesses. And so these are choice people, choices people make. Um, and the other part is getting back to the price thing. We sort of saw it on the farm where local people would buy produce from us and you would mark it up differently. So my first little enterprise was selling some of our milk to a local woman who made brown bread, like soda bread, to sell in the supermarkets. And she was very entrepreneurial. But we could charge her more for the milk than we would sell it for to someone like Bailey's. Like our milk went towards Bailey's Irish cream. And so Bailey's dictate the price to you. But the local woman making the bread who wants your creamy milk you can have a negotiation and you can figure out a good price point. So it was a good early price discovery and it was good early business discovery. And you, you realize a lot about how the economics of the relationships um, matter to either side and how aggregation of power can really dictate a whole economy for a group of people. Like, and that, that was certainly the case and probably still is the case for the meat industry in large parts of the world. It tends to be very big um, industrial grade companies dictate terms in agriculture to the suppliers. And what eventually caught your attention about problem solving and, and getting into engineering? Because it sounds a little bit distant from, uh, you know, what you were used to in the, in the farm. And that's a, that's a great question. I don't think I was a prototypical um, or stereotypical mechanical engineer in that I didn't have a huge interest in the cars and airplanes, but I liked the mathematical piece of it. And it was like going into pure math just didn't make sense. Like, from a career perspective in Ireland at that time, like being a math professor wasn't something that seemed like an obvious path. So being an engineer was generally where people who were interested in numbers went. And so that's why I went into it. And then I knew quite quickly, actually, it was a university in the west of Ireland that had really strong internships. And in particular, was a, a supplier of talent into the medical device R&D world. And I knew from my internships that I definitely didn't want to be an engineer. I, I was so, like, I, I like software engineering. You get a lot of exposure to software engineering, doing any type of engineering, like some mechanical. We did, we, we were coding in basic and Fortran and then on the digital basic. So we got a lot of coding exposure. And I like the coding an awful lot more than I like the engineering design work. So you, you, you get an, if you're, if, if you're lucky in university, you get to understand your own professional preferences. And that was the case. So I knew I actually had to do really well in engineering to not professionally go into engineering. Because if you only do okay in college, and you're sort of stuck in that domain, it's hard to transition. But if you do really well in any domain in college, it's easy to transition onto something else. It's a platform. So I knew by the end of my college career that I needed to get a, like a first class honors. And so so I worked hard at the end to make sure that was the case so I had optionality. And, and that's how I caught the eye of one of my college professors who had a software company. And that he made the leap away from academia the year I graduated. And he, he asked me to come and join his company. And so that was very exciting. That was my first startup experience. And it's so, so different from anything else I'd done before. Yeah, no kidding. And obviously, you ended up coming to the U.S. too. So, uh, you know, coming to this country is not easy, you know, as an immigrant. So I guess... What were some of the pros and cons, you know, when you came here and entered the venture world in, in such a different, uh, you know, region? Well, honestly, I, I probably am the luckiest person in the world in terms of immigrant experience. I was sponsored to come here. I came here with a European education, which, which, is really, which was really good. And I came here with no student debt. And I speak English. 
So honestly, I would say my set of immigrant circumstances, you could not be luckier. No debt, somebody giving you a job and bringing you over, speak the language. And I feel incredibly fortunate. And then you look at the odds of other immigrants coming in, it's, it, you, you realize how challenging it can be. And so people have to fight many, many battles to be successful. And, and many natives have to fight very, very hard battles to be successful. But I actually think my immigrant experience gave me so much advantages that are not the typical immigrant experience coming in, where it's just in practical terms, you have a debt load. Like being an entrepreneur with a debt load is hard because you have to pay student bills, you have to pay mortgage, whatever it is. Debt is not the friend of an entrepreneur, especially when you're in discovery phase trying to find product market fit. So I came in with no nooses around my neck. I think the other part is when you leave home, you don't have the same ties to friends that you had growing up. So it's oftentimes if you grow up in the same place and stay there, your social connections are really strong. And in a sense, you sacrifice that by moving and there's pros and cons to that. And But it means you have time to do other stuff. That's probably what it comes down to. So you, you're not going to spend as much time with family. My family were 3,000 miles away. Most of my friends were 3,000 miles away. So you get to redesign your life afresh. Which is um, which is pretty rare in some respects. Yeah, no, I hear you. Definitely not easy, and also it helps you with dealing with the uncertainty, you know, which I'm sure that uh, has served you really nicely as an entrepreneur as well. As a Spaniard in New York, you've done it too. It's like you're, you're there's pros and cons to this, where you're oh, yeah. there's trade offs on the personal front, and we're lucky we live in a sort of world where it's more, much more communication available to us now. When in the 1990s and early 2000s, my folks weren't on email. My dad just got an iPad. Two months ago, so you you just give up on that connectivity that you might have been very accustomed to. And on your case, you know, eventually you ended up uh, going at it on your own. You know, you were part of uh, the whole social network craze uh, uh, back then. You know, you you were in Boston, and that company actually eventually ended up getting acquired, and it got acquired by uh, Buy.com. Uh, now. One thing that is uh, really interesting, you know, as part of that uh, transaction, which was uh, Mitels, I like to ask you, like, what what kind of visibility would you say that gave you into the full cycle of of a company from start to finish? Um, I think it gave me a lot. I think Mitels was incredibly short lived. Like, in, a, in effect, it was less than a year. One thing that was beneficial there that I think entrepreneurs can often overlook, and even if I look at the headlines for your podcast. It's often has historically been about how much people has raised. There's an awful lot to be said for not raising money. Equity capital is extraordinarily expensive. And it should be. Like in other words, if you're going to make the investors a lot of money, if you're going to make the fund, the effective IRR on that capital is probably going to be 100% plus. You know, that's just, that's just how the economics work. Now, if you can hold on to a company, and I know lots of entrepreneurs have gone this path, if you manage to hold on to the blind share of the equity, even without raising any external capital, you own your destiny, and you can take different checks and it'd be a big win, a life-changing win. So in the case of Metails, the first thing I would say is we were we tried to raise venture and we weren't successful because there were so many social networks at that time. And so I think what it gave us as an advantage is we were it was much easier to do a deal with us. We didn't have other equity owners who had bigger multiple prerogatives and just different outlook. We were three people who could do a transaction pretty quickly. The other interesting part is we went to the acquiring company, Buy.com, and Buy.com had been a dot-com boom and bust story and then had survived afterwards and was finding its place in the world where 
at surface level, its competition was Amazon, but that really wasn't the case anymore. Like the tide had changed so drastically by 2004 about who was going to win. I think it gave me an upfront view on a few different businesses that have become huge that were the competition and you, un- and you understand why they became huge in hindsight. So one thing I think that's overlooked, for example, in Amazon as a third party observer and why things went Amazon's way. And I think it's this huge one that gets way overlooked. It's actually in the marketing. And it's very simple is that Amazon started off with an affiliate program and they did the affiliate program in the house. They just decided not to use any of the major affiliate services. And why that ended up being so consequential is that Google then dominated search and Google PageRank favored inter- like natural links back to the source. And because Amazon was running their affiliate program in-house, all of their affiliate links look like natural links. And so Google essentially gave Amazon e-commerce, like it handed it e-commerce on a place. Now, Amazon had to do a great service and everything else. But it's hard to underscore how much of an advantage that gave Amazon in broad scale e-commerce and probably saved their business. Like there's little there's little things. And we could see that in 2004, then the SEO game had played out in e-commerce and Google was changing its algorithm over the subsequent years to not favor that. But it was a done deal. Amazon had then gone multi-billion and they were just lucky. And there was lots of stuff with Amazon they weren't lucky about, but most businesses need that. Facebook would be another one that's interesting. Is like, I don't think if you were on Facebook now, you would appreciate that back then there were hundreds of social networks and there had been two or three that got to scale, but didn't get to mega scale. They got to 20 or 30 million. And then they typically ran into actually technology problems. But everybody starting a social network then had the widest doors open as possible. And what Facebook came in was a very narrow door for a very small community, which was Harvard. Like you couldn't register. And this stuff that was so in, like that was so instrumental to their success early on is now irrelevant today. And it's you don't get that same company without the narrow door to start. The virality that is so critical at the very start is not the same growth that's later on. So maybe one of the big learnings there is just how much companies change. Like some of the features that are critical at day one to getting critical mass are not important a year later. They're, they're actually hindrances when you're going to a different mode of scale. Like when you're trying to get the students on board and for it to be the site where people, people can poke each other, that was a feature on Facebook early on. That's not the feature that's going to be important four years later when you're trying to get mom and dad on the site. I hear you. Now, obviously, after this experience on your end, you did a few years, you know, one, you know, a, a stint, you know, on, on, on this company that ended up becoming SendGrid, you know, which was uh, about 10 months, you know, that you dedicated there. You left right before, you know, they um, they they went through the accelerator program and all of that stuff. But but ultimately, you did a few years in the ad tech, you know, also experienced Rakuten. So I think that that gave you good visibility to into like a larger corporation and how, you know, those uh, typically operate. And that was ultimately, you know, what ended up becoming one of the immediate steps before you activating the switch with Point, which is probably the biggest, uh, you know, uh, success to date that you've uh, that you've been able to to be a part of as a, as a co-founder. So walk us through the sequence of events that needed to happen for you to bring Point to life as well. Sure. Um, I think what you need for Point to come to life is Silicon Valley itself, where, where Silicon Valley invests in founders. And so we could raise money on Sand Hill Road, in particular Eddie, you know, my co-founder and CEO, who just sold the company to Visa. And so Sand Hill Road will trust you again 
to try something and it doesn't really matter what it is. And I think what was interesting for us very early in point is Wall Street doesn't operate the same way. And our business involved needs Wall Street capital. And with the Wall Street people, they were like, oh, you need to start again. You need to prove yourself to us. And that's a completely different regime. And, and some of that was the structure of our product. But I think at that stage of our life, myself and Eddie, in getting together to start the business, we'd started Meetails together with Jared Morgenstern. And Eddie and I came together to do Point. And I think it was the life stage, the type of problems you want to solve at that life stage. Yeah. And we were in our mid-30s. And so housing, it's just something you're thinking a lot about. And we'd each you know, either bought houses or helped friends buy houses. And we had these experiences that we sort of went, this is a big asset. People keep on talking about it as how savings, the most important savings vehicle for most Americans, but it's savings that are really hard to access. And, and so it was just this gradual awareness about it and then trying to problem solve it as tech entrepreneurs. And the piece that we probably didn't underestimate or didn't fully understand is the capital markets infrastructure you need to build an asset class because it truly is an asset class now, but that wasn't the case in 2015. And, and convincing Wall Street to do that and de-risking it for them is a, is a huge process. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So before you actually uh, pull the trigger here with Point, you know, obviously you had the entrepreneur in you brewing for quite a while since you got uh, going, you know, initially there with Mitels, but what, I'm sure that you also did a, some ideas before Point and what did you learn also from walking away from them before you stumbled across Point? It's, it's, a, it's a great question. So I even, even would go back to SendGrid and there's a few lessons you learn along the way. So the first one would be when Isaac and I were working before it became SendGrid, we were trying to do a, a music site for concerts and we were trying to do basically tickets for concerts that hadn't been scheduled. So basically trying to create the market for concert tickets. And we got some traction, but very little traction. But one of the things we figured out along the way was um, how to just send emails. Like it's, it sounds like such a boring thing, 
but in particular, it was how to send the emails, just confirming people's accounts and all that stuff. When we were pivoted once or twice, and we're trying to figure something out, and Isaac was the one who said, hey, we should just apply for Techstars. And the original idea was actually much more, much more aggregator-oriented. In other words, aggregate data from Twitter and everything else and have one console for sending all types of messages. And Techstars at that time, the Techstars team had made their money selling an email business to Google. And when they saw somebody coming in talking about email, they were like, hey, there's an opportunity that we left on the table. And they knew it. Like they knew exactly what Sangrid should be. So we came in with one thing and they were able to curate it to a whole new class of email, which was paying a premium for transactional emails. Before that, marketing emails and transactional emails, they were all grouped together. And these guys really realized that there was a class of email that really needed to be delivered and therefore should be paid premium and deliverability was everything. And this coincided with a couple of things that made Sangrid a real business in hindsight. One was developers as customers. And that was largely driven by the iPhone. So, you know, people were now building apps and they needed to be able to deliver emails or, or deliver texts and they needed to be able to quickly register their customers. And, and they didn't market to the customers on an ongoing basis. The marketing happened through the app and through notifications. So it was really that one first registration email that mattered a lot and, and many subsequent password changes. So there was a whole new type of customer that would buy the product with a credit card and you didn't do the traditional sales of email services, which was enterprise software sales. So this was a, just a massive shift. And the, I think in hindsight, the observation there is you're young entrepreneurs. So people starting business in their 20s and, you know, the areas where they're going to, that they will pursue that will become huge businesses tend to be at times and in places where there have been seismic shifts, like something is changing so that if you have experience, it's actually not an advantage to have experience. Because talk, we talked to tons of people from email world before we went into Sangrid, and they all said, this is commoditized. You guys are crazy. Don't touch it. And these were very established companies. And they were like, this is so hard to sell email services. Since then, you look at a company like MailChimp, Sangrid, Twilio, like a whole bunch of services were built. And, but they're largely built because the customers were completely different. They weren't enterprise customers. So they, the entrepreneurs were able to accrete a lot of value. So after um, Sangrid, some subsequent opportunities, I would say, you learn quickly about where customers can come from and that customers might not be valuable. The customer you thought is valuable. So I'll give some example. One of the ideas we iterated on was a marketplace and it was a derivative of the email opportunity where we thought it was a great um, opportunity for people to market email together. In other words, your email list, Alejandro, might be 5,000 people, my email list might be 10,000 people. You need a safe space for you to market in my email and I'm marketing your email and for us to be hitting the same audiences. We tried a service like that and it turned out you just get the trashy emails. Everybody who's got valuable email customers won't come on to a shared service. And that might've been a sales problem, but breaking through at that time wasn't gonna happen. So we had a quick learning there. The other opportunity that we were pursuing was actually a messaging app very similar to WhatsApp with disappearing messages. And then, or actually Snapchat was the first disappearing message app. And it was, a, it was actually probably a precursor to Snapchat. But our application got really big in East Asia. Like it was, it was really big in Pakistan. Like we were a quarter million users. And that was just server cost. 
And there was no way we could venture raise off the back of 250,000 users in Pakistan because nobody thought that was a valuable audience, even if it was exploding. And we couldn't get traction, the same traction in audiences in the US. So instead, for an entrepreneur, this was literally just hundreds of dollars every day in server costs. And there wasn't going to be a business. That was when we had to walk away on it. Virality is hard to get, but you actually have to get virality around among the right customers. So it was another early lesson. And then um, I think the last one is a generalized observation. And I've had it a few times, but it's it's learning where the value accretes to founders. And sometimes you go into businesses and you'd be fine splitting it. And a point would be a good example where there's the technical value. And I would say that's the fintech value, which is largely about distribution and efficiency. But then you have the capital value. And you do have capital in a fintech business competing for the wealth with the technology. And the power moves between the two. So in a high interest rate environment, capital wants more. Capital expects more. There's more demand for capital. And so the ability of the technology to demand its terms is reduced. So these power dynamics play out over time. And I think the entrepreneurs who end up making the most money early in their career tends to be finding that seismic shift where expertise is not helpful and where owning it at the start of getting in and owning it, they have an unfair balance because they've really got distribution power. So, I mean, obviously, you know, even able to uh, have that level of, um, of, 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 of impact too, even if it's early and, and it was starting and there was a pivot there. I mean, Sengrid, you know, it ended up going public, 2.5 billion valuation. I mean, incredible to be, you know, to have the opportunity of at least seeing the founding of, of companies like that. Now, I guess with Point, for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Point? How do you guys make money? Sure. Well, it's, it's very simple fundamentally as a product. Today, home equity, residential home equity, has cash from the homeowner and debt, mortgage debt. So there's no third-party equity. So if you think about the founding of a company, there's, there may be borrowed money or venture debt. There may be equity injected by the founders in terms of cash. But there's usually third-party equity. That expensive third-party equity that comes from Sand Hill Road or investors, wherever they are. In the homeowner capital stack, that doesn't exist. There's no, th there's no space for third-party equity. And that would be very valuable to homeowners, both existing homeowners who have a lot of money and trapped in the home, and to new home buyers who maybe don't have the generational wealth that some of other first-time home buyers have and who need third-party equity to help them come in on buy the home. So Point's business model is to really make equity for residential home ownership a thing, third-party equity. And our starting point was existing homeowners, and we've funded about $1.1 in home equity investments. But the market opportunity for that and the speed it's building now as it gets institutional is, is the one where it's like tens of billions per year of originations and, and ideally getting to the point where it's hundreds of billions a year because that is needed in the economy. It's, it's, it's just so much trapped wealth, but also just from a how do I become a homeowner perspective, it's reached the point where um, it's untenable without third-party equity. That's amazing. I guess, uh, too, I mean, obviously, you guys have raised quite a bit of money. How much capital have you guys raised to date for the company? Um, in total, about $180 million in equity capital. And obviously, you know, like with uh, money and with investors, you know, like there is a, you got to have a vision, you know, also for the type of business that you guys have built is remarkable. So when we're thinking about vision, 
Imagine, Owen, that uh, you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of point is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, I think in some respects I've just said it where it's, it's one where equity and homeownership is almost as fluid as debt. And there's efficiency in the corporate world and commercial real estate world and, and sort of the movement between debt and equity. But I think that has yet to happen in homeownership. Maybe if I were to say what the ultimate benefit would be, I would say that very, very few homeowners um, go delinquent on their mortgage because they don't need to because they've got equity. That's, that's the simple. If I were to wake up tomorrow and say, what problem have you solved? I would say it's all of the pain that homeowners feel when there's financial stress. They don't need to feel that pain because they've got a lot of wealth trapped in the equity in the home and they should be able to use it when they need it. So uh, let's talk about the past now. You know, I just want to bring you back in time. Let's put you into a time machine. And I bring you back cool. all the way back to 2003. Sounds you know, let's great. say you were able to have a chat with that younger self that is landing in Boston. And uh, you're able to stop that younger Owen and sit, that, sit down that younger Owen. Let's, hopefully, you know, Owen is listening. And, um, and let's say you're able to give that younger Owen one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? It's one piece of advice. Wow. For that person, me 20 years ago, um, it's definitely the people Alejandro. It's, um, it's, a, it's work with really great people who, who, who better you and try, try to get in a room where you don't think you're the smartest person in the room. That's probably the advice I'd have. Like it's, 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 I've always benefited from being around people who are very hardworking, humble. And, and if I look at the founders I've seen be successful, they tend to be really hardworking, really smart, and really humble. And, and that's, the, that's the pattern recognition over time that I've built up. And if you think about it, even if it doesn't go great, but you're working with someone who's hardworking, smart, and humble, you're probably going to still enjoy it. That's absolutely right. So, Owen, obviously, you know, we got to make it a fair game here because you haven't asked me any yeah, questions. So I'll, I'll let you, I'll, I'll open it up for any question that you have for me, Owen, to make it any fair. Question. Okay. I've got some very tactical ones to start. YouTube channel, you stopped posting two years ago. What did okay. you discover about YouTube? I think it's just like, it's just, it's just super, um, it takes so much time, you know, so much time. And, and ultimately, you know, it's something that I'm not giving up on. I think that, uh, you know, there's tremendous value, you know, that people I think are getting from some of those videos that I posted there around fundraising and M&A. Uh, and, and I hope to, to get going again there, but it, it just took so much time and effort, you know, but I, I really want to pick that back up because I can see and I still receive messages from people that is making a difference to them. And, and that really, you know, makes, means a lot to me when I receive those messages. So I need to pick it back up. But uh, unfortunately, TikTok and, and YouTube, I haven't been able to, uh, to push it as much as I want it. I've been getting your emails, I'd say, over 10 years now. Like, so you first got in my inbox, probably 2014. And I think that's representative of a moment in time when maybe I'd transition, I'd moved to the Bay Area. And so it was, it was related to one best co-founder dating. And, and, and you've been coming into my inbox ever since. Don't know if you use SendGrid, but if you do, it's deliverability has been very I'm high. I'm a very, 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 very uh, happy customer of SendGrid. <laughs> Super. That's great to hear. This is symbiotic. Um, I'm interested in what you've learned about bringing people together to start businesses. What's possible, what's not possible. And what, what, what observations you really have about people getting in a room to try and start a business when they're looking for a service to help them like, find somebody. Yeah, look, I think that ultimately, I, I remember on the last day, a company which was a co-founders lab, uh, you know, running that, I, I, 
definitely, you know, we learned a ton. Uh, I think we match made there like 600,000 teams. So we were able to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think that the biggest lesson there was probably around alignment uh, and expectations. You know, when it comes to co-founders, just making sure that, they, that they're both transparent or, or whoever is part of that team with their agendas and that they aligned uh, and also that the expectations are matching. And then the other thing that there is different backgrounds that could add to one another, because when you have like similar backgrounds, then there's going to be friction and that friction could be very lethal. So uh, those are some of the things that really stood out for me. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but probably those are the biggest ones, I would say. And then in the arc of you, you if I remember correctly, I think you and your wife worked together. Is that right? That's right. So I worked on the last company with Tanya, my wife. Uh, and I think that the that the dynamics with co-founders when you're married is very difficult because uh, ultimately you need to have two levels of conversations. Uh, one, the one that you have at the office and then the one that you have uh, in the house. Uh, and um, and it's not easy. You know, I remember one of the um, uh, early meetings that we had was with uh, Alfred Lin from Sequoia. And uh, without even, you know, uh, having any background right away after just like a couple of minutes, you know, talking, uh, he was like, hey, what is the relationship between the two of you guys? And and we were like super shocked that he already knew without us saying anything. So we told him that uh, we were dating and we could see his eyebrow lifting up. And and he was like, hey, do you guys know that the relationship, you know, is is going to accelerate for the good or for the bad, you know, with you guys? And we didn't really understand what he meant with that. But three years later, I sent him a video to our proposal and, you know, he, he thought it was it was unbelievable. Uh, you know, it was it was hilarious, actually. But uh, but yeah, I think that the the, the dynamics, you know, are, are not easy. I think that you really need to understand one another. I think that for us, thank God it worked out. And uh, we have three beautiful uh, young girls. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that that really helped us too in really getting to understand each other. But but it's not easy, you know, when when you have any type of family uh, attachment, either husband, wife or or siblings, because, you know, you don't want to be too tough, you know, on your feedback. You don't want to, you know, sometimes you can get into the uh, field of, hey, I don't want to hurt each other feelings. And ultimately, by doing that, you become ineffective. You know, there's a really good book called The Founder's Dilemma that really touches on this. Uh, but, uh, you know, thank God, you know, for us. We have always been very straightforward, very authentic and and honest with one another. And 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 it worked out, even though obviously we had like any other co-founders, you know, disagreements and stuff like that. But in the end, it was not about who was right or who was wrong. It was about what was right for the business. Yeah, well, that's incredibly brave because most founders, when they'd ask about it, the, the spouse is who you turn to is your therapist in this. And so when the spouse is is the other person, is the other co-founder that's um, that's intense. I have one last question for you, which is what's the arc then on Pantera and what's the common theme for you professionally? Like I, I, this feels like, yeah. first of all, you've built a platform centered on founders and entrepreneurs, and this has been your career. What's at the, what's at the core of that for you personally? Making a difference. You know, before I was uh, pushing paper behind a desk as a lawyer, and I thought, you know, and for my friends in Madrid, they they thought that I had, you know, been able to accomplish something coming to New York and and being in a law firm and, you know, all of that stuff. But but I was not fulfilled. And I started getting involved with New York Tech Meetup and going to events and and I so enjoyed, you know, the vibe and 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 the 
the just like seeing people putting their ideas out there and 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 being able to enroll others and and seeing them coming to life and and I said to myself, hey, I want to be part of this thing, but why not, you know, building stuff and doing stuff for them, right? To really make an even bigger impact. And I guess that's that has been, you know, like my uh, purpose and my path in the last, you know, company with OneBest, which was, you know, as we've talked talked about, you know, co-founders lap and all this stuff. You know, it was more on the operational side, helping people out. And now I think that the next calling in my journey is helping on the transactional side. And that's what I'm doing with Pantera, which is basically helping, you know, founders out on the M&A side or on the capital raising side, because I saw that based on the data that I had access to, that there was an incredible lack of access and guidance when it came to really understanding the capital side or the M&A side of things. Uh, and then I have obviously the media side, which is more for continuing on that path, more on the educational side, which is, for example, the podcast or the books that I've done or the emails that they, that you mentioned uh, or, or the even even the articles. But but just continuing on that mission of of really helping people out. It's impressive for somebody who is a dad of three girls. Um, yeah, that's very impressive that you're juggling so many um, sort of big balls. And um, I hope I have one request around this, which is that you edit me down and, and keep your answers intact. I thought it was super interesting there. But Thank I'm, you, I'm Owen. This, Alejandro, it was super hey, fun. I, I promise you I was going to respond uh, and we're not going to edit anything. You know, this was as it is. And what you see is what you get, you know, from this conversation with the two of us. So I guess for the people that are listening, Owen, that would like to reach out and, and say hi to you. What is the best way for them to do so? Owen at point. I'm, I'm old school like that. So E-O-I-N at point um, at point dot com. Very straightforward. Thank you so much, Owen. And thank you for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro. My pleasure. My, my honor. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.